0: Before we start the show today, we just wanted to let you know that this episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech Systems, a global leader in identity verification technology. With over 80 million users and trusted by the world's largest banks for KYC onboarding and re-verification, MyTech provides the highest assurance levels available, building trust in today's digital world. See how at MyTechSystems.com. That's MyTech, M-I-T-E-K. This podcast is also brought to you by Stake, the digital brokerage app bringing you unrivaled access to the U.S. market. Invest in over 3,500 U.S. stocks and ETFs, including game-changing companies like Google, Amazon, and Tesla. Trading is instant, direct, and commission-free, and with a fully digitized sign-up, you'll be in the market in minutes. So visit hellostake.com or search Trade to seize the U.S. market's $31 trillion worth of opportunity today. Hey everyone, before we get to today's content, I wanted to tell you about a brand new podcast from the 11FS Podcast Network, the FinTech Marketing Podcast hosted by me, Eric Fulweiler, Chief Marketing Officer of 11FS. Over the last couple months, I've been speaking to heads of marketing from the world's leading fintech and financial service brands, Monzo, Revolut, MasterCard, Zero, Starling, Lemonade, and many more. We heard their insights and ideas on how they build brand and drive growth for their businesses, and now we can bring them to you. So if you're into fintech, FS, marketing, which I assume you are, uh, please check out our brand new podcast. Search for Fintech Marketing Podcast on any podcast podcast platform. Subscribe, share, leave us a review, and please do let us know your thoughts. Appreciate the support. Hello, and welcome to FinTech Insider Insights. My name is David Breer, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host for today, 11FS head of PR and editorial, Jeff Whitehouse. How's it going, Jeff?
1: Yeah, good, good. I lost track of what day it is time has become a relative concept i think i might be living in the truman show uh not entirely <laughs> sure um certainly my local sainsbury's seems to suggest i might be so um, who knows who knows but yeah other than that uh pretty good <laughs>
0: I think I'm. I think I'm going more cast away than Truman Show right now. Which Fair. is uh, I'm. I'm going to be ranting in the uh, uh, the garage to a Spalding very shortly. But, uh, <laughs> it's um yeah, pretty 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 interesting times, isn't it? Uh, and actually, yeah, I mean, I think um, one of the things that's definitely not changing is is actually um, you know the the sort of community sort of coming together in one form or another, which is. Uh, Super, 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 super great to see. Um, today we're going to be discussing uh, the narrative of actually what's changing with fintech, and particularly in the the, the media spotlight. Um, the show is going to be looking at. And, and exploring how the perception of fintech in the media has changed over time uh, from the founding stories and founders through to crazy valuations and how far we've come and what we're going to be seeing in for the future of this industry that we uh, we know and love and um, within this what we'll be doing is looking at whether these firms are or if in fact they really need to change their approach to media relations as they become major players you know we've gone from scrappy startups to you know thousand 2000 person organizations so you know how has evolution really happens. Um, joining us today, though, to talk about this is people who are probably a lot better uh, placed than than just me and you, Jeff. So we have, uh, returning to the show, we have Emily Nicole, tech editor at City AM. How's it going, Emily? It's
2: going great, from my coffee table in South London.
0: Coffee table, not coughing, hopefully.
2: Well, uh, what well,
0: we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck. We're holding it in. Uh, and as well, we have Daniel Lanyon, is that how we say your second, second name, Daniel? Yep, that's correct. And you're the managing editor over at Altfine. How's it going today?
3: It's going great. The sun is shining. Um, you know, markets are
0: crazy, um, but things are great. It's, uh, I mean, it's it's good times to be at home, definitely um but uh who's looking forward to that bank holiday in a couple of weeks hey um all right guys let's get started with this because i think it's a super interesting one to see um what you guys think and and really what we sort of feel the industry is is sort of shaping out to so i mean in the early days of fintech it felt Pretty fresh and new, right? You know, it was pretty exciting times. Money was flowing around. New firms, uh, without outgoing CEOs, seemingly launched every week. Um, I mean, even the Monzo CEO has said, though, in the last couple of uh, months, that actually the the narrative of fintech in the fair uh, in the media has has started to change. Uh, I'm not sure if you want to play that now.
4: Again, stepping back, I think there is this interesting trend in UK media. And you see it with celebrities, you see it with sports people, musicians, and and startups where you spend a year or two um, really building building this stuff, these people, these companies up. Really, and, I, and we the first two or three years, we benefited from that. We mm. saw some amazingly positive, even euphoric coverage. We could do no wrong for a period of time. And then there's a tipping point. When you're big enough to then tear down, that everyone just flips and so... I actually don't think either are justified. Like, like anyone, like any company, any person, there are things we do really well, and there are things we're not so good at, and we make mistakes. And so probably the euphoric early press was overblown, but I, I really feel um, with some publications in the last six or nine months, you can go and read just a string of headlines that if they were true, Monzo would, be, would have failed by now, mm. and that is not true.
0: So I mean what do you guys think to that then because it, it feels like um you know fintech was sort of set up to be this messiah to come and save all of these uh, you know the 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 customers from the you know crazy overlords of the, the existing incumbent players I mean uh Dan do you do you think the uh, the the industry sort of set up fintech for for failure? Um
3: potentially I I think that you know we can broadly say uh, the media often does this you know time and time again across different, um, you know, different branches of the media, you know, particularly, I guess, in in sort of celebrity and royalty, things that are often built up, you know, with that hyperbolic um, saviour mentality and profile, they're often then, you know, not that long later, uh, a scapegoat or or a punching bag um, that, you know, is probably unfairly treated on the downside, if you know what I mean.
0: Mm. I mean, as as Brits, we do love a we do love an underdog story, don't we? Which uh, is always kind of an interesting one. I think everybody uh, everybody roots for the underdog until they're uh, until they're on top. But I mean, I mean, Jeff, what do you think? This seems like it's. Um, I mean, at the beginning of fintech, it was definitely sort of set up as a um, as the answer to uh, almost a panacea to to all of financial services problems, right?
1: Yeah, I think there's probably sort of two trains of thought here that I think both. Work together and sort of bring this together. I think obviously the context is key of when these firms came out right and started hitting the markets. You know, wasn't so long after the financial crisis. There was definitely a a trust issue with incumbents, and these new firms came along and they were everything the incumbents weren't. Right? They were new. They were fresh. They're exciting. They were hyper transparent. They were over communicating. You know, they're literally throwing their product roadmaps and Trello boards live for everyone and going, "What do you, the customer, think?" You know, it wasn't an, an email back going, "Hey, here's a new product for you." They're literally going, "You're our customers. You are what matters. What do you think?" And it, I think, you know, I remember going to uh, as was Mondo's old office, uh, I think near Paul Street, going onto their Wi-Fi network. You know, and the the old days with this card and, and have a look at it, and it was like this is not how banks feel like they should be, and that was new and interesting and exciting. And I think to Daniel's point, the media really latched onto that because they were so outgoing and you know outspoken, uh, communicative, transparent, and it really mattered to people at that time. I think there's also just a human nature element to this. So going back to sort of Daniel's point about how things get. Um, sort of hyped up only to be knocked down i mean you know you always see it in the music industry of like well i liked their early albums but then they went a bit mainstream sort of thing and there's definitely this of human nature and potentially maybe quite a british thing about you know build them up to knock them down which i think is now the narrative we're starting to see but certainly in those early days you know it was new is fresh and exciting really it was it felt like the things we needed in that period after the financial crisis i mean it, it is interesting that it become it became almost a, a
0: fashion accessory to a certain degree i remember having conversations with people about what number monzo customer you were so you know like you know definitely there was a uh the the sort of hipsters can get hipster about anything whether it's coffee or fintech right but i mean what what do you think emily because because obviously i mean um you know if you uh, want to go and talk to uh, the CEO of, of, of NatWest or RBS or uh, you know Santander? Then the process is a little bit different than it is a you know an approachable fintech CEO who really wants to get their messages out there. So in the early days of this, you know, it feels like actually that was a big advantage for for everybody in the the fintech sphere.
2: I mean, I guess it was a bit a bit more of an advantage. But then when you're a smaller company, there's less media wanting to talk to you in that sense. So making a CEO available is almost the least you can do. Especially when your teams are much smaller than it is now. Um, That's very true. But as time has gone on, I don't, I, I don't say I would necessarily agree with the idea that they've been set up for failure because I think it's almost become a bit of that. As journalists now, we can't keep writing the same stories about Monzo, the savior of fintech, or Starling's doing great, Revolut's doing great. Everyone's like here to save the finance financial world. Um. And so we have to be forced to look at other avenues. And naturally, as companies get bigger, problems start to happen. And that's where we as journalists then need to start asking questions and being more sceptical. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to generate bad headlines. I mean, Monzo, for one, for example, has managed to be relatively unscathed in the current trend of workplace culture and toxic environments, whereas others like Revolut or Free Trade or Um, Some of the other big tech companies have not done so well. Um, And that's probably one of the biggest trends at the moment that journalists are looking at is how these startups have managed to boom so quickly. Where have they stumbled along the way?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one. because I mean, I'd say, you know, if you fast forward a little bit to, to to sort of today and, you know, the industry, you know, post-financial crisis, you know, as you say, Jeff, you know, big uh, mistrust in big incumbent organisations and and actually, you know, consumers and people looking to solve these problems. Um, fast forward to today and actually we're in quite a different place, aren't we? I get it to your point, Emily, The the point that we're at in the cycle now is um, you know, the people who are making the headlines, actually, has that narrative changed about those guys? Because, because of the, um I mean, Christmas always sounds like it's going to be amazing until it's Christmas Day. And then it feels a bit underwhelming sometimes, doesn't it? So, you know, have, have the fintechs really lived up to the, the, uh, the hype that was surrounding them at the earlier days? Do you think, Emily?
2: I, I think in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no, there's always been stumbling blocks for some and you can name them for each one of the big three right so for Monzo it's that they haven't really managed to do premium yet and business took them a very long time for Starling it's that the customer numbers haven't boomed the same way they wanted to and for Revolut it's been growing pains in almost every direction um and so in in each case there's going to there's there's been issues there's never going to be a solid journey all the way to the top but I just think it would be naive to think that that was ever going to be a possibility
0: yeah and it's I mean it's easy to see the the sort of froth die away a little bit isn't it it's um when to your point Emily the only the only thing to write about at the time was funding rounds therefore Mm. everybody wrote about funding rounds so now actually there's uh, a little bit more, uh, you know, creases or cracks in the in the spaces. But I mean, it's quite quite interesting because I, I think to the point on uh, workplace culture, just to kind of you know stick on that bit for for a little while, and you sort of highlight, um, you know, Revolut have had quite bad press on that, you know, free trade sort of recently with things coming out. I mean, it's interesting that those things sort of hit the headlines for me because, um, to your point, uh, five years ago, six years ago, nobody would have cared. So the fact that actually anybody cares now, it says that this thing is actually a thing. Um, But equally, I'm, you know, most big corporate organizations, if you go to look at their glass door or any of those setups, there are anybody who leaves organizations for any reasons is they're always going to be pretty negative about them. So it's, it's difficult to understand, I think, in some of those cases, how the narrative matters in one instance and doesn't matter in, an, in another. Um, I don't know what you think about that, Dan, because it's it's an interesting one to sort of almost how we define what news is. And I mean, back to Ella Millie's point as well, it's like actually the fact that people really care about these things now says we're at a completely different point in the cycle than we were three, four, five years ago.
3: Well, I think that's true. And I think also you have, you know, probably most people have a friend who who works in fintech or you know works for monzo you know particularly in london so i think these things are closer to home but just uh, something um, struck me that you know i would have i would say the earliest sort of uk fintechs were the alternative lenders the peer to peer lenders who had a you know i guess a, a much more utopian sort of tagline which was all about sort of democratizing finance and i guess that's a phrase you don't hear as much now despite the fact that you know those guys have grown and they're lending year on year as an industry you know pretty significantly in the last you know 4 to 5 years but that has just become maybe a more accepted um, part of the system and and so i think that it's really interesting to go back to to that sort of period which you know i i i really only started writing about these sort of companies in in let's say 2015 2016 but you know that was already going on for four or five years it's just People didn't know about it. It was a an insiders only thing, and I think now where we're at today is that you know your friends who who might not live in London, you know they they almost certainly will have you know one of those you know Revolut, Starling, or Monzo cards, maybe all of them. Um, so I think it just now has reached out to to a broad base of the population.
0: What, what do you think, Jeff? Is this sort of early excitement sort of leading to? like saying now there's millions and millions of customers there you know the bigger the target the more mainstream they are the more interesting it is
1: to really understand what's making them tick I think so yeah um you know if I if I take it as the acid test of my family none of whom are in fintech and what they've heard of um you know a couple of years ago I got baffled looks genuinely the last six to eight months it My my mom, my brother, my sister like I saw those TV ads that looked interesting. Can you tell me what it's like? What's it about? What is this? I know you you sort of know this stuff. So to me, that's where I think we've got to this really interesting sort of what I call the awkward teenage phase for some of these banks. I think in that they they're growing up, but they're doing some great things. But and I think we definitely saw this, you know, with the the recent BBC Watchdog thing, and we were lucky enough to get you know Tom. Monzo on the show to sort of give his side but you know I think when you're a bank that has you know now four million customers and you are advertising on tv and you are looking to you know expand that user base you know Daniel's point sort of outside sort of this initial early adopter phase and into sort of real mass market point of view um you know not having someone else other than your CEO who can speak to the, someone like BBC Watchdog is probably not a great move, but, you know, to be expected as as you're going through these growing pains, right? Again, I think we're all hyper-connected in this space, but I know someone like my brother or my mom, who's one of these users and watches Watchdog, you know, and they're like, oh, is this serious? What's this all about? I'm like, oh, did you not see the blog they wrote? And my mom's sort of like, why would I look at the blog, what blog? And I think this is where we've got this interesting phase of if you're going mass market, there's that interesting tension I feel between keeping the narratives and the hyper transparency with what you have, with moving towards you're going to have to, and it, it sounds sort of like the dumb approach, but you're probably going to have to put like apologetic adverts into the FT and that sort of approach, and sending a tweet out with a here's a blog of our breakdown of what went down and why. Why we think it's incorrect is great. It's not going to be enough for mass market people. And by you know, again, I feel bad. I'm sort of I feel like I'm sort of dissing my mom and my brother on this entire show. But uh, you know, they're definitely not in the fintech realm, but are keen and in interest on these new types of banks. And- they're not even on Twitter. They don't care about the Monzo blog. But when something goes wrong, these banks are going to have to start finding, I think, slightly different ways of communicating while trying to keep that tone of voice that has made them sort of, you know, get to this point so far. I mean,
0: I, I think the I think the Monzo one with, with uh, Watchdog was really interesting because, I mean, I haven't watched Watchdog since, I mean, I was like, I don't know, 20 or something. Uh, and actually, to go back and see... Um, the program sort of portray a, a story that I'm not sure necessarily was reality. Um, but as you say, the the control that um, many people will have stopped using the product because of that. Uh, you know, many people will have had a a very negative um, perspective of the in the industry or anything other than sort of high street banking, which which I, I guess is really the the concern because. Um, you know, in the in the pursuit of um, you know viewership or readership, then actually, you know, in and I and I think across the board, really, negativity sells right now. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure from from your perspective, Dan, if you've if you've seen this, but I mean, it it must be clear in analytics that you guys get off the the back of things that I mean, I I would suspect that if you guys put out a, a good story, you'll get the people who are supporters. If you put out a bad story about something that's that's you know factual, then actually you'll get the people who like the company and the people who dislike the company. So sure. so it's a it's a it's a weird sort of paradox that we sort of sit in, where actually the you know the amount of control that the the media actually has in that sense is is huge, really. It's true. Um,
3: I would say you know to, to go on a bit of a limb and to to massively tar all with the same brush. I'd say there probably has been, particularly in the last two years, unfair coverage in the nationals. Um, you know, by and large, uh, you know, not to say every story. Um, but absolutely. I, I agree. And I even, I even heard, um, you know, a few rival, um, well, I say rival, but a few of the national newspapers that, um, you know, you write a bad story about Revoluto Monzo and it's going to be one of the top, um, top stories of the day or the week. Um, across the whole paper, you know that which is extraordinary when you think about it. So, um, I I do think that is uh, an issue. Um, you know, I I think that um, you know I wouldn't I wouldn't say that there's been a sort of a hit job necessarily done on the industry, but I I do think that there are quite a lot of regular um, you know veering on unfair stories that that you would see. Um, for us, we you know absolutely if there are. If there are, I guess, things not going to plan stories, let's say, um, those are big hitters for us. You know, we we broke the story about um uh the, the Monzo premium um delay, and that was an enormously big story. But but that's also partly because you know there's a, an army of people out there who, you know, who will be sharing that, you know, in 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 the Monzo blog, or you know, <laughs> so, you know, those those things are are maybe um a bit uh a bit different, but yeah, I, I do think that we we see um, inc- an increasing amount of negativity, and you know I I would even extend let's say to a Metro Bank. I think you know Metro Bank received pretty pretty um, harsh coverage from its outset, really, and I think there was a sort of sense of like you know um, maybe journalists um, or newspapers finding the message of fintech you know a bit arrogant perhaps or a bit naive um, you know to be quite honest.
0: Yeah, I think there's there's definitely been a sort of a bit of, like you say, backlash on, uh, you know, definitely sort of some of the naivety of, uh, you know, uh, actually, look, banking's kind of hard, guys. Like, you know, the idea that you can just come in and transform the entirety of the industry overnight without actually maybe even any experience of working in financial services. Uh, is, is it been, you know, definitely a narrative I've seen from the banker's side. Um, but equally, I think that's a very fa- fair point because, um, you know, you're asking people to trust your service and people need to be able to trust the people who are running those services. I mean, is this a, um, I guess to, uh, to keep it sort of keep being balanced on this, the comparator really is, is like, would another story about RBS not having a good culture or would another a store a new story about a um you know revolute culture or monzo's culture um is it just the sheer deluge of you know the 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 negative about the existing incumbents that really it's it's just slightly taking the shine off fintech with with regards to it being new and shiny um emily what do you think on that is it is it just a this is the first time we're really seeing negativity, so it stands out more. But really, this is the norm across all the industries.
2: Yeah, I mean I think so. You were you mentioned something earlier which I think was spot on, in that the idea of a toxic workplace culture was not something that people were really concerned about before. Or they were concerned about it, but it wasn't something that our society had yet deemed interesting from a news perspective. So when all of the incumbents were like, well, I guess they've all done their growing up a long time ago, but they never really had to deal with that in the earlier days, um, and that's where we are now with fintech is that we're watching them as they grow, so that's so we're able to chart it much better as journalists, um. But I mean, the idea that an RBS story about workplace culture, if there were to be one, would not be as exciting as a Revolut or Monzo one, I think, is a bit, um naive. I know, for example, definitely at, at least this AM, a story about RBS workplace culture would do much better than than one about Monzo or Revolut. It would be on the front page for sure. Um sure. so I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily that fintechs are sexier, so those stories do better than they than they would if it were an about an incumbent. Um, but I do think that there is yes, a bit of a tendency to leap to the negative at the moment because we're all trying to really understand how these companies can go from tiny to big and if you just pass through with no scars at all that would be slightly concerning that there's an idea that what what are you hiding um and as journalists it's always our job to find that out so
0: for sure i mean there's always there's always stuff i think that's the thing it's um if any business is uh... Uh, you know, particularly such a hyper-growth company of of any of them, there's always going to be things that will uh, have have happened during that period of founders leaving and all sorts of stuff. But I guess my my point was, I wonder if from a from a end readership perspective, um, I mean, we've we've got um, you know uh, a UK population who was like, look, we get it. Fred Goodwin was like a a tyrant, right? So actually, you know, no more stories on on RBS can really like. You know make it make more of a dent right now, whereas actually people who have been sort of put on a and it and it does feel like this to a certain degree almost like the industry puts um you know five or six companies on a on a bit of a pedestal and now what we're finding out is um you know sort of nobody's perfect, but I guess to that point we we sort of shouldn't have really have been surprised on these things right startups are messy aggressive violent things for at least the first two years of them because if they're not then they don't exist um so I think a lot of what's put down as um you know um sort of toxicity from a cultural perspective is um organizations just struggling to survive for the first few years and only really it gets to the point where you're in a situation where you you actually have enough um you know money in the bank or ability to to breathe that people can start, you know, actually processing what their company really needs to be. I mean, Jeff, I know we talk to a lot of different um, players
1: in this space, but I mean, it's definitely what we sort of see on, on our side of the fence. Yeah. There's definitely, there's elements of that. I think sort of to both Emily and Daniel's points, there's, (laughs) there's multiple sort of intertwined things that are happening at any one given time with just, I mean, if we could take, you know, frankly, what's happening right now yeah so there's just we're talking to journalists you know Daniel I know we sort of quickly mentioned we talked about this from last time we met up in person it's sort of this everything is within the context of something else when it comes to financial services <laughs> you know and and right now what we're seeing today is markets that are you know we know there are journalists who are kind of bored of writing certain types of stories but editors are like well no right now it's just about coronavirus and the markets and what's going on, you know, we're seeing that from just, like, inbound requests. It's like, I know I wanted to talk to you about X, but actually I've been told to part that because now I need to do everything about Y instead. So there's always that context, and I think it's more how that context, you know, plays out over time. I think that will flip, frankly, in the next couple of weeks, you know, as this, you know, terrible situation sort of continues to unfold, and there will be, certainly we're already hearing stories, like, folks, like, I just, I can't write another coronavirus story right now. I need to find something else so there's all I think there's always to me that it's always that context is key with all of these things and how that narrative has evolved mm. yeah I think it's it's
0: it's going to be interesting like I say as the organizations continue to grow and like I say I mean as this particular situation unfolds but I, I guess even even how the community sort of coming together around uh what's happening from a virus perspective now is being uh you know amplified in such a major way right now so i mean i i still i still feel like there is a huge amount of goodwill in the industry for for everything that the the, the fintech players are, are doing i'd say emily i i completely agree with you i think actually if um if any organization gets to uh you know eight or nine years old and there hasn't been some sort of controversy um i think it's probably how people own it i mean do you do you guys think the um the the sort of hyper transparency of these players in some ways has almost come back to bite them a little bit because i guess in those early days people expected people to you know they set the tone by going you know here is everything here is us this is how we are um and now as they've grown up a little bit and maybe even from many of these organizations we've started to get slightly more traditional uh you know Maybe a few more bankers in the room, you know, pe- people who are maybe slightly more media trained, who are uh, 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 kind of uh, saying a little bit less. Um, are you guys kind of finding that actually the the way in which the players in the fintech space are interacting with with you guys in the media is is changing? Emily,
2: I wouldn't necessarily say it's changing. I mean, so you mentioned the the idea of hyper transparency, and. Um, whether that has meant that they have to continue along that route. Some people could say that means that it's coming back to bite them because that's what they started off with and so now they have to continue with it. But I actually, I'd like to think that it's a trend of what it should be. Um, all companies now should be pursuing more transparent um, communication, not just with the media, but with their customers about when things go wrong. Um, and so when now we have technical issues from someone like TSB, we expect a lot more information from them and that's a good thing um obviously having access to a ceo in the early days of a company and then trying to expect the same level of access five years on is probably a bit Now, from a journalist's perspective we know that they're going to be a lot busier than they used to be um and some journalists will wear that as like a badge of honor that they used to be able to get that kind of access when they covered them in the early days um but as more national and global publications are sitting up and taking notice it will event it does lead to some companies being put on the pedestal and getting more coverage than others um but part of that i think is because in fintech especially it is the most consumer facing part of the technology world at least in the uk our biggest startups are the consumer banks um And so you're not going to see the same level of focus. It might feel like Revolute, Revolute, Monzo and Starling get undue attention from national papers. But actually, I think it's more of that they're the ones that are most recognizable for consumers. We always have to think about our readers and are you going to know the name of the company we're putting on the page in front of you? And so writing the same story about a company that makes software chips, that's not even a word, (laughs) hardware chips (laughs) for or um, some B2B software it's just not going to have the same level of impact. So we're not as interested.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing. I think there's a balance between, I mean, I think often people in the fintech community kind of forget that most mainstream, you know, and this is where the, like I say, the point in uh, the cycle where we're at is like fintech is mainstream now, right? It's uh, to, to sort of steal your metaphor slightly Jeff, it's like uh, you know the band isn't that little scrappy band anymore. It's uh, it's headlining Wembley, you know. So um, you know the impact that the industry is having means that actually, uh, Emily, to your point, it's it's actually the things that touch. People's wallets—that is going to, you know, capture the most amount of eyeballs for to get the kind of most amount of uh, readership for for things that are kind of going out there. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see increasingly as um, fintech kind of moves to that back office. I mean, open North is arguably, you know, one of the biggest success stories in terms of uh, you know fintech, um, but uh, but they get probably ten percent of the the um, like you say the media attention that somebody like a Monzo does right now. Uh, I mean, despite the uh, the the sort of accolades that they've received over the last couple of weeks, but it is interesting to see how um, you know attention is very much on that space and actually shifting increasingly into business banking as well with everything that uh, has been happening with the the remedy side of things. But I mean, have you guys seen um, Dan? Have, have you seen people sort of um, acting any differently as they've sort of matured through through the last couple of years in terms of their engagement with you? I think
3: there's that there's a certain amount of truth um, in in a shift, and I think um, you know. I read this amazing stat a few months ago that um HSBC had something like 500 press officers um you know um it, that's extraordinary when you think about it when you compare um you know some of the let's say the let's say let's call them the big 3 um who we've discussed a lot you know <clears throat> uh, much much smaller um press teams but nonetheless press teams that have grown from one person um you know maybe to 3 or 4 and um I would say also <clears throat> there's there's an element of um, I think startups quite often have um, you know early employees who who move through the ranks very quickly um, and you know someone says I'll, I'll do it I'll do the press you know um, sure and then all of a sudden you know they're getting ten thousand requests a week to interview their CEO when before you know they 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 were just sort of um, it was part of their brief maybe doing other things so I think that's also an interesting trend but um, something you said um at the beginning of the chat that I thought was is is so important is that um you know let's say I go and I go and catch up every every 6 months with um a, a leading digital bank um at least in the last year or so that's meant a, a sort of a doubling of the workforce um over that period you know um that's a very very amazing thing um you know it's like you you see Monzo in January and then you go and see them in in um June and it's like there are now two monzos in terms of the headcount and um you know th- that's quite an extraordinary thing. So I think keeping the same culture and the same, you know, the hyper transparency as as he called it, I think is very, very difficult. And I, I don't think it is as desirable, you know, um, maybe as Emily as Emily said, I think um you know, I think a lot of scandals do happen um you know in big banks and in, in incumbent
0: banks, but you just don't hear about them because they they you know they cover them up <laughs> well, I was going to say press offices, but also there's very large legal teams yeah, that, I mean you could talk about um i think there's without naming any names, but there's uh, there's a few sort of celebrities in the uh in the press who have probably got more people on staff suing people to keep things out of the press than anything so and actually big really big organizations obviously have really big legal teams, so i mean it, it, arguably um you know, fintechs are kind of easy targets in some instances in terms of their their ability to really understand it. I I honestly do think there's an element here of like I, I do come back to on some of this is the lack of media training in some of the spaces and actually the just the age category of some of the people who are in charge of these companies actually means that we're in a like you know we're freely available 24 7 via social media and all of us use it you know 24 7 therefore actually the the sort of connectivity to to people and the ability to be really transparent is there and when things are good that's great when things are bad it's weird um so it's it is a, a, a very odd time that I think we sort of live in. I think to your point, Jeff, I think um, fintech is going through that weird sort of teenage phase. And uh, actually, it's, um, it's interesting to see what will happen over the next couple of years. But I mean, how, how do you see this sort of playing out to a certain degree? Because these, these companies are getting bigger. They're getting much bigger consumer bases. The trust in these organizations, the MPS scores that we're seeing from consumers is getting uh, better and better and better. Um, You know, arguably we've seen a a reset on customers' expectations um, because of what the the banks have have done. But um, do you see the impact of fintech uh, on the the industry being as big as we we thought it was once going to be, Emily?
2: I think fintech has had a very big impact on the industry itself, not just from a transparency perspective, but also from a features perspective. We all like to say how, you know, Barclays now has freezing cards and, Even as a a user of Santander, for example, I mean, it's taken them a very long time. But in in the last three years, they've finally gotten around to using Face ID in online banking, I think, in the last few months, actually. Um, So it definitely is very good for keeping incumbents accountable and generally pushing everyone to a higher standard. Um, But for the future, I think what we're going to see now is obviously, so the last year or two, it's all about growing pains for these companies um, and as they become more established, and I think we will get there within the next year, it's definitely going to switch more to holding these companies like like Monzo, Darling and Revolut to a level of accountability that we see for the big banks. In the budget at uh, last month, there was a fintech review announced, and in that review, they mentioned competitiveness, and I think that means that we're basically going to start looking at. Deals like Amazon and Deliveroo, there's being probed by the Competition and Markets Authority, um, that will start to happen to the likes of Monzo and Revolut and Starling. We haven't heard much about them acquiring yet, but acquiring strategies are definitely going to ramp up, especially with the amount of capital that's flowing into these businesses. Um, and that will start to become a big concern for the UK Competition and Markets Authority because we're already seeing a lot of the younger startups in fintech, people trying to break into the banking space in particular, um, not succeeding failing having to raise extra money or sell off assets just so they can keep afloat um and that in turn harms consumers especially if you're banking with them and i think over the next year or two that will then become a very big focus of the way the narrative shifts around fintech
0: yeah i can i can definitely uh definitely see that happening jeff what do you think the the sort of narrative will twist on this is they get bigger i mean are the are the small banks going to become the big banks and then we're going to get some more small banks coming along? Like, is this cycle going to kind of repeat itself a little bit? Or uh, is this everybody just growing up a
1: little bit? If I had that accurate a crystal ball, I would 100% be playing the lottery every week, I think, for, for starters. Um, I think Emily makes it like a super interesting point, yeah. I think if we want to take sort of split this into sort of immediate slash medium term, so, you know, the rest of this year going into next and then probably sort of, a you know, five years out sort of thing. We're starting to see those stories, you know, without wanting to beat up on certain brands. You know, how N26 announced it was leaving the UK and everyone was sort of like, I mean, you say that, but is that really what you mean sort of thing? And, you know, and they they had not been hyper transparent. You know, they were very defensive as to what they even defined a customer as when questioned by some of the sort of German press when they were sort of like, you know, you're a big store banking story, success story coming out of Germany, what's the deal here? And they they went weirdly defensive. I think, yeah, you know, we've seen it with tandem recently as well, sort of lots of stuff around there. So I think what we are likely to see, I think unfortunately, just as a what's happening right now, I think you know, we're we're starting to see, you know, soft bank announced sort of it wants to pull back from certain things, it wants to go heavier into other things. So you know, funding is clearly going to start being more of a struggle just because of what's happening in the global economy for some banks that I think could be problematic, Um, you know, for some of these challenges. And I think we will sadly see some of them fail and we're going to have to be prepped for that. And it is going to happen. It's not the end of the world. You know, it's horrible for those founders and for the great people that work there, but I think we have to be prepped that it is more likely than not to happen. And, um, there will be stories about that. And, you know, I think it happened with N26 where, you know, a lot of folks were like, actually, I think leader actually said this in a recent show, you know, maybe N26 saying they didn't think the UK was a viable market was actually a bit of a wake-up call to everyone, like maybe, you know, maybe there are just too many banking options out there and we don't, won't need as many. And the, ultimately you say, well, do market and customer forces just decide, does that mean that of the challenges really, you know, Oak North is doing brilliantly with what is it's doing, but is it really just Monzo starling, maybe atom for you know mortgages and loans they've been doing some really interesting stuff, and you know they're pretty determined to sort of really break into that space and have really sort of set themselves up for that. I think what's fascinating is you then see how this is now playing out in markets like Australia where there's suddenly now getting all these new challenges as well, and it sort of feels like it was the u k sort of two three years ago you're like oh I, I think I've seen this story play out before um and so I think that's kind of immediate term. I think over the longer term to me it's going to be hulking back to what I said earlier it's going to be that balance and I think Emily and Daniel both said this really interestingly as well about sort of the access to that senior leadership does it become more hierarchical do you have to go through 35 different press officers with you know three years ago you could have just whatsapp that the founder and gone hey I'd just like a chat about x y z they'd be like cool call me in five sort of thing you know that's just not going to happen that much anymore um I think as they, yeah, you know, as they're doing more TV advertising, as they're going more mainstream, it will be sort of um, not to have a play on words here, but incumbent upon them to really maybe start thinking about how they're communicating. As I said, where they're communicating, but keeping that tone and that transparency. After that, I mean, really, who knows? I think, yeah, to your point, at this at some point, they're going to stop becoming challenger banks, and they're just they're rapidly just becoming banks, right? So. Um, it's what What else happens next, what new semantics will we suddenly uh, start exploring and will we suddenly have to start writing new articles about what the heck do we even mean by fintech or challenger anymore, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting distinction, isn't it? I mean, it, I always kind of
0: point back at uh, First Direct took nearly 30 years to get one and a half million customers and, you know, Monzo and Starling and Revolut and these guys are, are just blowing by those numbers so quickly. So, I mean, do, do you see this, Dan? Do you think that actually the... The narrative really is that the, the the pack just becomes the pack really in terms of uh, the the sort of scale of banks that we're at and i mean it's interesting to sort of see where we're seeing the the incumbents acting a bit more like the startups and we're starting to see the startups act a bit more like the incumbents right for sure <clears throat> you know
3: in to some extent i would even say some of the incumbents are sort of out startupping the uh the startups you know naming no names but you know from from recent experiences um I would say that the the history of banking in this country, let's say going back four hundred years is, you know, is determined by who survives the crises of the time. Um I think that that you know we can't really unfortunately talk about about FinTech without talking about um coronavirus and you know and, and what the fallout for that is. Um you know, I think if you go back to the to the seventeenth century, you had about four hundred private banks in the city. Um Barclays is the only name that survives today apart from um, Halls Hall's Bank, um, I believe. So, you know, those guys have survived and obviously um, thrived, um, you know, at times of crisis. Uh, I would also say, yeah, we we can't call it fintech forever. Um, You know, I think particularly because, you know, fundamentally, journalists sort of love and hate um, buzzwords and jargon and, and, you know, particularly in the age of SEO and that sort of thing, um, you know, uh, yes, it's very attractive to go after um jargon, but i think um yeah we we won't call it fintech forever um There was a really fantastic uh sort of presentation by i think it was a, a partner uh, andreessen Horowitz that sort of argued um just about six months ago that sort of every every company will be a fintech company in the future um in the sense that you know um they'll derive part of their revenues from some sort of financial services. Um, whether that's sort of in-house things or whether that's, you know, plugging in other providers and, and earning some sort of commission. I, I really back that. I think that, you know, I'm going to go on the limb. I think that there's a very, very strong likelihood that um, blue chip companies that exist today, you know, in, in fields
0: that seem unrelated to financial services will be big players. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, probably just to, to, to wrap up, it's like, like know, say big companies acting like small companies, small companies acting like big companies, uh, everything is fintech, everybody is fintech, nothing is fintech, right? This is uh, super, super interesting times. But um, uh, thank you so much uh, to the guys for joining us today. Emily, thank you for for coming in. Dan, thanks for coming in. Uh, AltFi, CTM, definitely sort of things that I kind of read all the time. So uh, g- uh, great work, guys. Um, where can people find out more about your publications? Starting with you, Dan. Uh, well, altfi.com. <laughs> that's
3: a good starting point
0: and how about yourself personally
3: uh so i'm on on twitter and linkedin um obviously and um yeah at dj Lanyon, um my
0: initials not my um second profession. You say that now, but uh, anyway. (laughs) And Emily, where can people find out more about you, and where can people find out more about CityM?
2: So I'm on Twitter, at Emily J Nicole, and CityM is now a 100% digital publication for the time being, thanks to coronavirus. So you can read our newspaper every day, at citym.com slash edition, and all our stories are online during the day as well, at citym.com.
1: Super cool. Jeff. where can people find out more about you? Uh, Sure, Twitter, at by Jeff W. Uh, I make no bones about the fact I mix both NBA, NFL, and a bit of fintech in there as well. So, um, and cat gifts sorry so just prep yourselves nice Uh,
0: and as for me uh, mostly hanging around my office right now but uh, skulking around on LinkedIn so uh, find me over there thank you so much for listening if you like what you heard today subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review over on iTunes it makes it super easier for other people to find us speaking of which if you know somebody who loves fintech who isn't listening to this show right now and is probably going to be kicking around doing not so much for the next couple of months let them know about it it's just the right thing to do really Um, if you've got any suggestions or feedback find us on social media or just search 11fs uh, on all of those different platforms or email us on podcast at 11fs.com thanks for joining us today